Greenhill Orphanage, the season of naming, two years before the departure of the fateful Lakewall Caravan. Tilly watched the red-hot metal bend under each hammer strike. Clang, clang, clang. It sparked with each impact. The quick glances guiding Priest Trowley gave let her know that he was annoyed by her presence. She didn't mind. He wasn't truly looking at her. His eyes, just like so many of the guiding priest's eyes, were simply passing over her. He may see her, but he never looked at her. You know, Trowley said, submerging the piece of iron into the water with a hiss of steam. The naming ritual of Callum is important. You could follow the good example of the other children and go complete your assignment. Who says I'm not? Tilly asked. Trala sighed and put the iron back into the furnace. Well, I do for one. Do you understand the importance of this assignment, Tilly? Tilly nodded. She did understand the importance, but everyone else assumed she didn't. One major problem was that Tilly's view of the importance didn't line up with the priests. Hadn't they said that the Lord of Deepstone could work in strange ways? Why was it not feasible that she understood the story better than them? She tried to vocalize what she thought the importance was, but every time she was scolded. You could never peer into the depths of such a monumental tale. I've studied Callum since becoming a priest. I know the true meanings. Every priest had a different scolding. Trollos often involved simply recounting the tale. This, Tilly actually didn't mind. She enjoyed listening to the story. As if on cue, Trolla cleared his throat. <clears throat> Thus it is said in the holy words of the shell, the lord of Deepstone, who defends his domain on the shores of the abyss, became saddened by the quality of people who traveled through the Deepstone to join in his fight. They came to him ragged, worn, and nearly dying from thirst. You see, the people had become selfish and did not give to the fountains, and so the paths through the deep stone were dangerous. A faithful blacksmith named Callum gave all he had to the fountains, and yet drank nothing on his way through the deep stone. The Lord chose Callum as his emissary. The Lord told Callum he would grant him one favor. Callum asked only for water for the thirsty travelers and to continue his work at the forge. And so it was granted. Callum was sent back through the deep stone to the lands above. When Callum left, the Lord of Deepstone gifted him with a simple hammer, knowing he would take nothing grander. Callum accepted the gift and returned through the deep stone to those lands above to do the Lord's work. He went from town to town and would set up his forge. He would make tools, shelters, and weapons. No people joined nor aided him in his work. When any asked something of him, he would give them an offer. I'll give you a gift unlike any other, Callum would say. A gift from the Lord of Deep Stone. He would hold forth a glowing chunk of metal from the forge. All would refuse. But one day, a young girl accepted his offer. In good faith, she held out her hands. When Callum dropped the hot metal, the girl cried out, but the metal had already cooled before it touched her hands. What do you see? Callum asked. I see a cloud, she responded. And so it is, for you are a fierce storm who will roll into the lands of the enemies and raise their fields, bringing victory to your people. 
you will be called Gale of Fields. Now more came and accepted the gift. Some were burned, but each received a shape. Some would tell Callum the shape they saw, and he would agree and give them a new name. For some, he would disagree. The priest paused and took a drink. He continued, And so, every child in the church must go through the naming ritual of Callum. You make something, show it to the priests, and we will tell you what we see. When's the part where you drop red-hot iron into my hand? Trala groaned. To the... Most children use this opportunity to play with sticks, stones, and leaves. Why can't you do the same? I don't know, Tilly said with a shrug. She thought for a moment of telling him he was wrong, but she couldn't find the right words to vocalize what she thought the story meant. She just had a feeling, an instinct she could not speak. Trala sighed and returned to his work. If Trala had taken the time to truly watch Tilly, if even for a moment, he would have seen the intensity with which she watched his hands moving and striking, his shoulders as he stoked the forge. And if he had looked for more than a moment, he may have noticed that Tilly's own hands looked shockingly different than all the children playing with sticks, stones, and leaves in the fields and forests around Green Hill. Previously, the caravan prepares to leave Lake Wall. After sneaking into one of the wall's towers, Tali and Whisper came across two slate who seemed to be involved in secret preparations. The same slate Ifair warned them to avoid. After falling out with Ifair, Tali made a snap decision to cut out on her own. Despite her determination, Whisper seems confident she will not last long before returning. Chapter 5 In the Shadow of the Wall, Part 2. Just east of the North Cathedral Gate, one day before the departure of the fateful Lake Wall caravan, the dust from the road caught into Lee's throat and she coughed. She never stopped walking. If anything, the discomfort increased her pace. Carts traveling to join the caravan rolled past her. She continued on, a fish fighting against the current. She realized she was cold. The sun hid behind the wall. Tilly had never been this close and now realized that the towering walls could blot out the sun even around midday. She shivered and hugged the bedroll she was carrying tighter. She easily could have put the bedroll on her back with her travel pack, but it felt good to hold it to her chest. For a brief moment, she thought she could smell that fragrant earthy smell from beyond the wall. But then... It was gone. The cacophony around her was a dull sound to her ever-turning mind. 
she still only heard the sound of the configuration. She shook her head as though to dislodge the sound. There was no point in reflecting on it now. She had to plan. What would she do when she got to Shadow of Refuge? She looked down at the sack of coins that Whisper had given her. That strange mage Ricky Slar had given it to him to give to her. She'd been confused by this at first, but after some reflection, she realized it must be because Ricky Slar was a mage of the House of the Die. Ifair had mentioned that they had odd customs. She had also recently spent a portion of the evening lauding what a waste of talent it was for people that understood the natural world so well to use it to earn a quick coin. If there was an orphan dying on the street, a mage of the die would look for how they could earn something from this situation. Ifair had also said they used their magic to help with their games of chance. Tilly had found that curious. She had been excited to maybe learn about that at Eero. Tilly's mind wandered again, and the sound of magic returned. She suddenly felt like crying. She'd been forced to walk away from something she'd enjoyed doing many times before. At Green Hill, she'd found all sorts of things that had, for a moment, made her feel some morsel of... something. She wouldn't call it happiness, but it was... something raising a small colony of ants in the storage room, sewing small patterns into her clothes, using pages from books in the classroom to fold interesting shapes. She was scolded for each. Having to abandon these activities had only made her feel numb. But this, using magic, studying with Efair, she suddenly realized that losing it hurt. Tilly became starkly aware of the noise surrounding her, The rumble of the rolling carts, a hundred voices near and far, the whistling of the wind and rustling of leaves. But there was something mixed in with it all. Something that despite the surrounding sounds and echoes of magic in her mind, stood out to her. Something amiss. Where in the abyss am I? The voice was quiet, and either no one else heard it, or no one cared. Whoever it was seemed to be babbling. Tilly listened, and definition came to the words. It was a distance away and was getting more frantic. Tilly scanned the surrounding area. It seemed that all travelers were focused on their destination as Tilly and the voice were both ignored. Finally, she spotted the source. The road was beside a large open field, and at the far end of it was a small patch of trees clustered around a pond. A man stood in the trees. From here, he seemed to be simply a red dot moving to and fro. Tilly walked in his direction, and as she got closer, she noticed he was becoming agitated. He never raised his voice, but it became more desperate. Oh, wow, oh, wow. Oh, my, for the bound, you've done it this time, he said, his voice raspy and downtrodden. Tilly was now close enough to recognize him. A red veil covered his face one of the slight from the stairwell. She realized that if he had his guard on, that meant he couldn't see her. She stared for a moment. She sighed. This was her first time she was doing something solely for herself. Should she be selfish? Simply ignore the man? That seemed like the sort of grit you needed to survive in the world. Besides, someone else could help him. She turned to continue on her trek. As she turned, she saw the man trip, fall, and disappear into the pond. She never made the conscious decision to start running across the field. She just found herself doing it. She could hear the man shouting desperately. 
As she neared, she saw he had simply fallen down a bank into the muddy shallows. He had picked himself up, but was wet and covered in mud. Hello, he said, his voice shaky. Is anyone there? Can anyone hear me? Tilly was about to respond when she got a chill. She remembered Efer's words. Do not talk to the slate. In his fall, the slate's veil had moved, revealing the shiny metal visor that he wore over his eyes, blocking out his vision. He had no idea she was there. She could walk away, leaving him. She sighed. Are you hurt? She asked. Oh, thank the Lord of Deep Stone. Oh, blessed child, thank you. Thank you, the slate in red said, fumbling in her direction. Hurt? Uh, physically? No. My ego has perhaps taken a beating. I am, however, I must admit, lost. I was, uh, I heard the call of some ducklings, and I came over here to feed them. I'm normally oh so good at navigating the surrounding land, but for some reason I got here and I just cannot for the life of me determine the direction of the caravan. It sounds like it's all around me. Tilly looked back at the distant, bustling roadway. To a degree, the man was right. The sound of the constant stream of carts must have confused him. Pity welled in her heart, and she felt ashamed she had almost abandoned him. My hand is right above your head. Grab it. I'll help you up onto the embankment. He reached up, firmly grasping her hand. His hand was frail, white, and covered in colorful splotches, perhaps a pigmented ink. Despite his frail appearance, his grip was strong. Tilly pulled and the slate stumbled up the embankment. He fell to the grass, and Tilly fell with him, dropping her travel pack and bedroll. He laughed. Oh, you've made this slate very glad. There is still good in the hearts of people. He picked himself up, his hand touching her bedroll as he stood. He picked it up. You've seemed to have dropped this. It feels like a bedroll. A bit heavy, though. Tilly took it back and held it defensively to her chest. She now looked up at the sky. There was not much time to get to Shadow of Refuge, and she didn't want to be out on the road during the dark. Can you make it back to the caravan? She asked. Certain of it, the slate said with a smile. He turned and nearly fell down the same embankment. Tilly grabbed the back of his robe and he let out a cry of confusion. You almost fell again. Did I? I can get you to the road. Will that help? Featherbound smiled. Certainly will, he said. They turned and slowly started to walk. They had gone only a few steps when he jolted forward with a cry of agony. Ah, my foot, he cried out. My foot. Tilly stooped down and saw Featherbound's face twisted in pain. You're hurt. Oh, nothing I haven't experienced before. Get me to the road and I shall limp my old self to the caravan like a good servant of the Lord of Deep Stone. Do you actually want that? Tilly asked. It was an honest question. I, ah, Featherbound sighed. I must admit that I fear I will have some difficulties in my journey. It's all right. I can take you back to the caravan, Tilly responded. She yet again helped the slate to his feet. She suddenly felt anxious, realizing she was scared of bumping into Whisper, Ifair, or any of the other students. Would they mock her? She pushed those thoughts down. She was her own person, the abyss with what they thought. She was going to help this man. I'm sorry to distract you like this. I'm sure you have something important to do, Featherbound said. Tilly reflected on this comment and actually found herself laughing out loud. For the first time in her life, 
She was not on her way to conduct some arbitrary task, cleaning dishes, attending fields, studying boring books. She had nothing to do at all. It felt strange, almost uncomfortable. As she realized this, that sound of magic filled her mind again. She pushed it down. I have nothing important to do, she said. Oh, but you do, the slate said. I can hear it in your voice. But I must know, what is the name of my savior? Tilly, forgotten orphan of Lakewall. Ah, you have not been forgotten by me, Tilly. You have not been forgotten by me, Featherbrand said. So I must ask, as I am a curious man and view questions as very important things, did you decide you didn't want to put up with the mages after all? I thought you were one of the new students. Was, Tilly said. I wasn't a very good one, though. There are no bad students, Featherbound said firmly. There are bad teachers. If you are asking questions, then you are a good student. Again, questions are a special thing. I did ask a lot of questions, Tilly said, somehow feeling almost guilty reflecting on the constant barrage of questions to Efair. Then you are doing your part, Featherbound said. He dropped the subject, much to Tilly's relief. They now walked in silence. Tilly noticed she could see Featherbound's shield under his veil. It was a dull gray and covered in faint inscriptions. She also noticed his red hood had symbols embroidered all over it, though they were in a very similar colored thread and were nearly invisible unless up close. Knowing he couldn't see her, she stared at them in wonder. Pretty, aren't they? Featherbound asked, making Tilly jump. So I guess those things don't block out your sight then. Oh, they do. I can, however, hear you breathing incredibly loudly in my ear when you turn towards me. Do not fret, dear. Staring is sometimes a form of a question. And I must say again, questions are a good thing. Featherbound smiled and squeezed her hand reassuringly. All right, then what are the symbols on your veil? How do you move around with those things over your eyes? Why do you wear that? Do you miss being able to see? <laughs> slow down, slow down, Featherbound chuckled. I'll get to each of your questions. I do miss being able to see, yes. But we do get to take these off, you know. They serve both a practical and a religious purpose. As for the symbols, they are quite straightforward, if you know how to read them. They tell others about our area of focus. Each slate's veil contains a unique set of symbols, often embroidered by ourselves. If you read mine, it would speak of governments, organizations, coalitions, currency, people, and so on. But if you were to look at, say, my companion, Lyrians, it would be quite different. You would see hammers, swords, singing. You would see the mighty smith Callum on his journey through the lands, and all stitched by herself. But all that aside, are you thinking of becoming a slate? Is that why you abandoned your magic? Tilly wasn't sure how to feel about this question, but something about the phrase abandoning your magic made her feel angry. I guess I just like questions, she responded. A good trait, Featherband said with a huge grin. Now, perhaps you could indulge an old man who has some questions about what exactly it is that you mages do. Tilly didn't know where to begin, but once she started talking, words seemed to simply roll off her tongue. Featherband listened intently, nodding along as Tilly rattled off the plethora of information she'd learned from Efair. Featherbound asked questions that Tilly was shocked she knew the answers to. She wasn't simply regurgitating all the lessons. She was applying them. Oh, bless you, child, Featherbound said. Here, I have something that may be of interest to you. 
an old mage book I have simply no use for. Featherbrand retrieved a book from his robes and gently placed it into Tilly's hands. The cover of the book was ornate and red. Upon quickly leafing through it, Tilly saw it was complex and was not something she was going to be able to understand anytime soon, especially considering her current level of literacy. She thought about taking it to sell, but with a sigh, she decided against it. She handed it back. I can't read, she said. And yet you know so much, Featherbound said with a hint of surprise as he put the book back in his robe. You are clearly passionate about this study. Was she? She just talked about it for so long. She now realized that she'd not managed to ask any of her own questions, but had simply talked about her studies. As she prepared to remedy this, she was cut off by a stern voice. Featherbound! Tilly turned to see a tall woman flanked by two stern-looking wardens looming behind them. The woman wore a robe of dark green, a veil, and a scowl. Featherbound's companion from the stairwell. Featherbound, we've been searching for you. He's right here, Tilly said. Child, don't distract him, Lyrian shot back. Featherbound corrected her. Ah, Lyrian, she's helping, he mumbled, taking a step back, distancing himself from the woman. Tilly's sympathies for the man swelled anew. He fell into a pond, she said, and hurt his leg. I'm helping him back to the caravan. Lyrian scowled. You have stuff to do for the bound. Why were you in a situation where you could fall into a pond? A strange and formless urge, Featherbound responded. Wardens, escort Featherbound back to the caravan and ensure he has completed his duties. Keep your eyes on him. The warden stepped forward, roughly grabbed Featherbound, and escorted him away. Tali looked at Lyrian. She seemed unfazed by her brisk treatment of Featherbound. Bitch. Tilly said, just loud enough for the slight to hear her. Lyrian didn't react. Instead, she simply raised her arm and said, I am now without an escort, child. I need you to take me back to the caravan. Tilly wanted nothing less. She had no intention of helping this woman with anything, never mind wasting more of her own precious time leading the slate back to the caravan. She turned to walk away. A memory of Featherbound describing Lyrian's veil piqued her curiosity, though, and she paused for just a moment to look back and satisfy her own curiosity. She stopped and gasped. What is it? Lyrian asked. Your embroidery. It's beautiful. The thread work was complex and meticulous. The threads crisscrossed, a symphony of lines in monochromatic green. They were subtle and yet bold. Featherbounds had appeared simply utilitarian, but these? These were art. It was unlike anything Tilly had seen in her life. Lyrian reached up and touched the veil, like a mother reaching out to caress the cheek of a long-lost daughter. It's nothing special, a simple method of letting others know of my studies. And you did those yourself? Tilly asked. Lyrian paused. Long ago, long ago. The pause spoke more than the words. Tilly felt a pang of sympathy for this woman as well. She'd created something so beautiful. Tilly took the woman's arm and guided it to her own. I'll take you back to the caravan, but that's it. Lyrian stiffened, and the moment of vulnerability was gone like apple blossoms in a storm. Enough delays. Onward, she said. Tilly regretted her decision. As they walked, 
Flea looked at the veil again. She saw a man working a forge. It was Callum. A question from many years ago now bubbled to the surface of her mind. There was no point in holding back. This was one person whom Tilly did not mind pestering with questions. What is the purpose of the naming ritual of Callum? We had to do it at Greenhill. It was boring, and the priests got it wrong. Lyrian's lips tightened. It's a celebration of transformation, she said. Right, but why give the name to the objects? Because those were the things transformed. Perhaps it was to purposely get on the woman's nerves, but Tali suddenly found herself arguing with a leading expert on stories of Callum. You agree that the Holy Shale is the words of the Lord of Deepstone? She asked. I do. And the Lord of the Deepstone can work in unexpected ways? Yes. So? It's possible that an orphan from Lakewell might have an interpretation that is better than that of a lifelong scholar of Callum. Lyrian seemed irritated. Speak your mind. The transformation is of the person, not the object. But the object is quite literally transformed. But the person is as well. The act of transforming something transforms you as well. The courage to accept the hot metal in their hands changed those people in the story. The act of creating the items changed Callum. The items were the representation of change, but the people were the ones truly transformed. Lyrian did not immediately respond, clearly trying to keep calm. Well, not all are transformed by their work. Tali noticed that Lyrian's hand again returned to the embroidery on her veil. Then they aren't doing the right work, Tali said. And then she stopped. Lyrian nearly tripped at the sudden halt. Tali thought of the sound of magic. She thought of that pain, the feeling of loss when she realized she wouldn't become a mage. No. Not that she wasn't going to become a mage. That she wasn't going to get answers. For once in her life, she felt like instead of asking questions that simply hung in the air, she was on a path to go out and get answers herself. And then there were the friendships. Abyss, did she truly have a friend? Did she want one? She looked back towards the caravan. She thought of Whisper, of Efer, of those books. Oh, she hated them. Yet she couldn't get them out of her mind. I've got to go, she said. Stay a moment, child. Lyrian replied. Tilly, Tilly corrected. I am well aware of your name. I am reminding you of what you are, a child. I know you train as a mage preparing to travel to Eero. A bitter tone crept into her voice. Don't. Remain in Lake Wall. Stay in the walls. Do not travel out into the foulness of the world around us. Tilly stared at Lyrian. Her disdain for the slate was suddenly overpowered by something subtle. The sun had found its way above the wall and now warmed her skin. She closed her eyes and breathed in, now getting another hint of that earthy smell from beyond the wall, mingled with the sweet flowers of Lake Wall. I think I don't belong anywhere, she said. And I think what that means is I get to do what I want. And she turned and left, leaving Lyrian behind, stunned. Gears turned in Tilly's head as she walked away, her bedroll clutched to her chest. She was going to leave the wall. She may not become a mage, she may not amount to much, but by the abyss she was going to leave. She was going to do what she wanted. She was going to get the answers she wanted. She was going to transform herself. 
And the easiest way to do this was to win that competition. And the easiest way to win was to cheat. She pulled the bag of coins from her pack and smiled to herself. There was one person who would know how to cheat. Ricky Slar was easy to find. He was guffawing as he talked to a local merchant and subtly lamenting how he wished that someone would have the sense to invest in his brewing business. It was a guaranteed return of at least 15%. He's not going to invest, Talee said flatly. Ricky Slar turned, clearly annoyed by the interruption. Weren't you running away or something, he asked between puffs on his pipe. The merchant took his opportunity to flee the conversation. Tell me how to win, Talee said. Ricky Slar coughed and smoke billowed from his mouth. Can't help you, he said. He was adamant there was no secret to winning the competition. Talee tried every technique she could think of. Flattery, trickery, old-fashioned bribery. Nothing worked. Ricky Slar pointed out that she'd just missed an entire round, which means she'd have to perform flawlessly in this upcoming bout. Even he wouldn't take those odds. Efair could have done it when she was my age. How would she have done it? Ricky Slar laughed. You're right, but that won't help you. Her secret is dedication, hard work, and something you have in short supply. Time. She came to Eero a child with rags on her back and left one of the greatest mages the consortium has ever seen, the world has ever seen. And she did it with hard work. Why, that hard work continues to this day. You've sat with her in the evenings. Ever notice her fascination with making tea, hmm? Boiling water? How intently she stares at the kettle? Well, that boiling water is practice. She's using the sacrum. Expanding your exchange is a fickle art and not truly understood, but much like building muscles, it's the strain that seems to do it. Efer bonds to that sacrum four times. You can see it. Look at her hands. Four fingers pressed firmly on the surface. Clever. Clever indeed. Two and two. She competes against herself. It's like moving a boulder up a hill. Now, of course, I can't be totally even, or it wouldn't be much of a challenge for her. That would be like rolling a hollow boulder up a hill. What do you mean that they can't be totally even? Ricky Slar grinned. Oh, dear. Now, I didn't mean to let that slip. Well, I guess there's no point in hiding it. Thank you for listening. I'm so glad to be back making new episodes. I know this one's been a while coming. If you've made it this far through the episode, thank you. All right, I wanted to quickly give a plug. The Stone Singer Chronicles has an official Discord channel. And if you want updates on the new episode, like I'm, I'm now working on episode six right now, and I've been trying to relatively regularly post updates to Discord as I start working on the new episode. I'm going to be doing it a little bit more than I already have. So I'll be posting kind of status updates on uh, how the episode's going, the date I'm thinking it's going to come out. I will even post little snippets of it, the kind of sneak previews. Uh, like this episode, I posted the first seven minutes of this episode a few weeks ago on the Discord. So if you want to hear stuff early, get information, and kind of know when the episode's going to come out, Discord is the place for you. The link to that is in the show notes. All right. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Green Hill Orphanage the season of naming, two years before the departure of the fateful Lakewall Caravan.
The exercise lasted a season and was usually during harvest. Each student received a random item and it was their responsibility to transform it. After presenting it to the guiding priests, the item was to be named. To Tali, this was incredibly boring. None of the priests even thought Tali would attempt the exercise. She was given a simple metal bookend and abandoned for the most part. They requested she complete the task, but there was no conviction in their voice. Tali had actually been excited when starting, but after seeing the others simply attaching leaves and sticks to the item, she got discouraged and bored. The most frustrating part for her was the possibility. Metal could make so many things. The priests were shocked when Tali arrived on the day of the naming ceremony with a bundle of cloth. Assuming the cloth was her presentation, none bothered to ask the contents. They went child by child, reviewing each individual item. They would make a show of looking over the mess of twigs and rocks and fabrics attached to the random item. Tali laughed out loud at most names. The fox, the great wise tree, subtle feather. She laughed a dry, flat, but sincere laugh, even after the priests hushed her. And then it was her turn. And what did you bring us, Tali? Guiding priest Trella asked. Tali triumphantly folded back the cloth and held out the work of her hands. With a steady hand, she held out her sword. It was misshapen, filled with imperfections, but was distinctly a blade. I call it Leaf, so don't bother with the naming, she said. Her voice had a strange energy that had it not been for the fear in the room, the priests might have identified as pride. Trolla quickly snatched the sword away from Tali before she could protest. You have taken a gift and turned it into an instrument of violence. This is named Strife, he snarled. It's named Leaf. Tali said. Her tone made Trolla take a step back. Silence. This thing is strife, Trolla hissed, as are you. I'm confiscating this. How you were able to construct such a crude and vile weapon is beyond me. And it was something in the way the priest moved, his weathered hands clenched, warning her not to speak, that Tali kept her mouth shut. Trolla took the sword. After this event, all the priests claimed ignorance. Each claimed it was impossible to have known what the girl was up to, but there had been many signs. The first was her walk. Tilly, for the whole season, had almost danced around Green Hill. She enthusiastically tackled her chores, made eye contact with those around her. The glow of the forge in the middle of the night was another clue, as was the clang of the hammer. After days of watching Trala, she figured out how to man the forge on her own. But the easiest method of discerning what she'd been up to would have been to simply look at her for once, truly see her, scarred, bruised, calloused, and nimble. The priests could have simply looked at her hands. The North Cathedral Gate one day before the departure of the fateful Lakewall caravan. The cold configuration was stronger. Tilly was running towards the gathering of students, her bedroll clutched against her chest. Ricky Slar had suddenly been all too willing to reveal his secrets, for a fee, of course. What had changed? Tilly knew the truth of the sacrum and the edge available if you chose cold. That gave her an advantage in only about half her rounds but she would still use it to win. Somehow. Somehow. Whisper saw Tali before she saw him. He snuck up and wrapped an arm around her. 
It was a subtle embrace, barely draping his arm over her shoulder before pulling it back. Tilly stepped back and glowered, but refrained from hitting him. She was glad to see him. Quicker than I expected, Whisper said. When you were leaving, I thought you were actually going to do it. Me too, Talese said. She handed Whisper the box. You win this time. We'll tally those points later. And she left him behind. She found Efer talking hurriedly with the warden. When Efer saw Talese, her demeanor went cold. Not a good sign. Talese hoped perhaps her story from earlier would have softened Efer's stance. Efer turned to the warden. Tell the others that the girl has been found. They can stop the search. The warden nodded, accepted some coin from Efer, and left. You sent the wardens after me? Tilly asked. Efer turned and Tilly could see the mage was more than just worried. That was foolish, Efer said, her voice quivering. Tilly was taken aback. You could have stopped me, she said. You could have stopped, thought for even a moment, Efer retorted. She seemed to instantly regret her outbursts. Her face softened, but the fire behind her eyes persisted. Tali, I know you've had a difficult life, but everyone has. Look around us. I still want to come with you, Tali said. Win or not, I'm coming with you. Ifair sighed. Well, there will be one problem. The results of this test do have an effect on your education at Eero. You may be able to come with me, but once we get to Eero, I can't guarantee you'll be able to study under me. The only thing that could save you now would be winning the competition, which means winning every single match going forward. At first, Tali didn't care, but as she digested the information, her stomach nodded. She did want to learn under Efer. Efer could be gruff, mean, and demanding, but at least she'd seen some potential in Tali. Ifair was the first person to ever actually look at her. Plus, she was the only teacher Tilly had. Well, that's what I planned on doing anyways, Tilly responded. Her first opponent was clearly not concerned about the match. And why should he be? Tilly lightly touched the sacrum with a finger. She'd selected cold for her first match, taking advantage of the superior strength of that configuration. That familiar sound rushed back into her mind. It felt like being home. Ifair gave the signal, and the match began. Tilly's opponent was aloof, unfocused, clearly assuming this would be an easy win. He seemed concerned when nothing happened. He squinted, furrowed his brow, and focused. Tilly also focused. The whole of her attention was on the water. Every ounce of her being was lost to that sound, to that feeling of power running through her. Small white tendrils spread through the water. They grew and grew. Her opponent let out a strangled shout of defeat. Tilly wins, Efer said. There was light applause from the crowd, but from her cohorts, there was stunned silence. The exception was Whisper, who was giving a standing ovation. Tali made eye contact with Ricky Slar and grinned. He winked back. Not only did Tali remain undefeated, she improved. She improved a lot. She realized the extra strength of cold wasn't the key to victory. It was simply the knowledge of the imbalance. When she was trying to boil the water, she could sense her opponent's strength. She used it. She would wait, not exerting herself at the beginning, but simply holding the balance. Once her opponent got sloppy, then she would pounce. 
It was like pulling a rope and then letting it go slack so the person on the other side would be caught off balance. The sound was no longer what filled her mind. It was the possibilities. She felt like a child making out vowels and mimicking their parent. She wasn't speaking yet, but she was forming her first words. It felt good. It felt great. She pondered the limits of the magic. What would it be like to interact with more than just water? How would it react? How would it absorb the energy she put into it? Did the feeling change? Did the call change? Did the heat and the cold of the configuration work differently than other heats and colds? The cold of shadows, the warmth of the sun, the heat of the forge. She was so lost in thought that when she won the penultimate match, she didn't even notice. She just sat there, staring at the beaker. Ifair tapped her lightly on the shoulder and she started. Dinner time arrived, and Tali and Whisper went to find a meal, but Tali found she had no appetite. Whisper had just missed out on the finals after losing his final match, and Tali expected him to be downtrodden, but he still attacked his meal with gusto. Tali ignored the visceral display. Her mind swirled with possibilities. After she'd rattled through all her thoughts and the chaos of excitement seemed to be settling, a single thought crossed her mind. She pushed it down, but it wouldn't go away. It was dumb. But... She excused herself after picking at her food for only moments and trotted away, bedroll in hand. Onlookers were confused as they saw her take the bedroll and carefully drop it into a shallow pond nearby. Let them watch. When she returned to the site of the competition, she saw the crowd had doubled in size. Whisper sat down beside her. They've heard of your meteoric rise. I can't say whether they're here to see you succeed or fail. Tali nodded. When Ifair returned, the finals began. During the finals, Tali easily cleared the field. In her comfort, she decided to take a risk. In multiple matches, she let a piece of her mind reach out and apply the cold to something else. It was a strange feeling, far more difficult than simply affecting the water in front of her. Even a minor touch made her feel exhausted. When the final match arrived, she knew she would have no room for experimentation. Only one person separated her from victory. Of course, it was Ray Vood. As he approached the Sekrum, his face displayed confidence, disdain, and superiority all in one. Even after her stellar performance leading into the evening, he was obviously more focused on her poor performance earlier that day. That would be his mistake. Ifair explained the rules. The final match was a best of five. Which configuration the two used alternated? Hot, cold, hot, cold, hot. The words blurred together as Tali was already focused. She felt like she would burst if she didn't start soon. She was lucky and got the first choice. She chose cold, meaning she would get access once more than Ravud. She didn't feel she needed the advantage anymore, but she'd take any help she could get. She won the first round easily, much to Ray Vood's confusion. He blinked slowly and shook his head. She didn't go easy on him the second round. She allowed the water to near that slushy stage where the white tendril shot out, and then she focused. The water cleared, then steamed, then boiled. Ray Vood actually stumbled back a step and pulled his hair, clearly frustrated and stunned. Ifair also seemed confused, but said nothing. Tali relished Ravud's confusion, watching as his face went through a loop of emotions. Frustration, pensiveness, dismay, defeat. Frustration, pensiveness, dismay, defeat. But then, 
For a brief moment, he paused in his pensive state. He reached up and scratched his head. Then he smiled. Tilly felt her own insides freeze solid. He'd figured it out. She could tell just by his face. Ravud turned to Efer. I choose cold. What? I thought that it went back and forth, Tilly asked, panicked. Efer frowned. As I was saying, if one person is on the verge of victory, then the other will have a free choice. Right. Tilly realized that she'd missed that crucial information while lost in her thoughts. There was nothing to be done now. Ravud's smugness had returned as Efer signaled for the new round to begin. Tilly focused, but something was different. Ravud now tested the boundaries, using the new information he had somehow gleaned from watching her. Really, it made sense. He'd studied around configurations, and probably even sacrums, for most of his life. The benefits of growing up rich. He had a strong enough grasp of the basics to see the advantage when directly faced with it. She fought. She fought as hard as she could, but it now felt like competing against a skilled combatant wielding a longsword while she was armed with only a dagger. There was simply no overcoming his experience. The water froze solid. There was a cheer and a smattering of claps. Tali looked helplessly from Efer to whisper to the crowd. There she saw a white-faced Ricky Slayer. She realized now that he had probably given her the information to again use her as an edge in his betting. Ravud's choice, Efer said. Ravud again chose cold. This time was quicker. Tali felt her influence on the water, all that intuition she'd slowly been learning over the past few hours coming to naught. Ravud's influence was strong and wily. His understanding trounced her intuition. She was going to lose. Tali hung her head as the water froze solid again. Final round. Tali, heads or tails? Efer asked. Tali's head shot up. Of course. In the last round, they were both able to win, so it was back to random chance. Tali called heads. The coin spun and landed with the visage of a noble facing up. Victory was at hand. Tali was about to say cold, but something stopped her. Ravud was smiling. She stared at him, processing. In just moments, he had surpassed what had taken her all evening. Just like she'd been able to use the advantage to win while playing the weaker side, he would now be able to do the same. She closed her eyes and thought. He had the advantage either way. That earthy smell from beyond the wall seemed to fill her nose, and the sound of magic filled her ears. Her thoughts wandered to that forge late at night. The joy of the hammer in her hands, working on leaf those late nights, the pain of losing it. She hadn't known what she was doing, but by the Lord of Deep Stone, she had enjoyed it, just like she enjoyed this, and she wasn't going to lose this. She smiled, opened her eyes, and looked confidently at Efer. Hot, she said. Ricky Slar audibly groaned. Ravud seemed surprised, but a grin tugged at his lips. Efer didn't react. Tilly, however, was not looking at any of them. She was staring at the beaker and the sacrum. She carefully reached out and touched the sacrum. She heard that call, understood it, felt it. Efer gave the signal to start. 
During her attempts this evening, something had changed. The sound was still chaotic, but there was a sort of reason to it, a strange logic that only made sense when you were there in the chaos. At first, it felt like being trapped in the gales of a storm. Now, it felt like waiting on the edge of a lake. She could not control the small waves lapping at her, but she understood how to interact with them. She understood how to skip rocks through their crests. She could not understand the depth nor the breadth of the body of water in front of her, but she had the barest understanding of its implications. Her mind settled, and the call felt controlled in its own chaotic way. She focused, then split that focus. One part of her focus on the beaker, and another on something else entirely. She focused with all her might, feeling the heat transfer to its target. She quickly tired, her exchange draining, but she never wavered. Icy tendrils spread through the beaker, but Ravud was not grinning yet. He was also lost in his determination. Tilly fought as hard as she could, but her split focus made it difficult. The water was now nearing the point of totally freezing. Ravud briefly broke his gaze on the beaker to look into Lee's direction. He noticed her exhaustion and allowed himself to grin. But it was brief. His mistake, like so many others, was in simply looking at her, but not seeing her. His years of schooling may have helped him understand what was going to happen next. He just had to look at her hands. Tilly held three fingers to the sacrum, just like how Ricky Slar had mentioned Efer did it. She'd never truly used multibonding before and heard it could drain you. But what's the worst that could happen? She'd experimented with it over the course of the competition and found herself unable to hold the multiple bonds. It felt like trying to run in a dream. She couldn't get up to speed. There was some sort of bizarre resistance. The water of the lake swirled and pulled her under. She'd broken the bond each time, lest she drowned. But with her current determination, she stayed focused, fought the swirling of the lake. One part of her mind was focused on the water in the beaker. But another two parts of her mind were focused on a material she knew, a material she had stared at for endless hours. She knew its pattern. These two parts of her mind were not struggling in the lake. They were effortlessly gliding across it in a sailboat. The water in the beaker was just about to freeze. Ravud let out a joyful squeal. Ifer seemed disappointed. Ricky Slar was counting his losses. Whisper simply hung his head. Tali, stop! Tali looked up and saw that Ifer was staring wide-eyed down at her three fingers pressed against the sacrum. Her warning was too late. Tali had switched the two bonds and directed them full power into the beaker. There was a sound of breaking glass. There was the color red. There was steam mixed with angry black smoke. There was a shout from Ifair, a gasp from the crowd, and faces over top of her. She noticed the shield of a slate. Such a beautiful piece of metalwork, intricate and covered in designs. How had making that transformed its maker, she wondered. And then there was darkness and silence. and then darkness, and then light. Tilly opened her eyes, but quickly shut them. The light pierced directly into her brain, making the world spin. Wherever she was lying, she was being rocked and jostled. She opened her eyes again, slower. Sunbeams glided gently through the thin layers of dust in the air. 
She was surrounded by shelves, and yet birdsongs filled her ears, along with the low hum of activity and movement. She pulled herself up, and searing agony shot through each of her limbs. Whoa, 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 slow down, Whisper said, suddenly at her side and easing her back. Talia didn't fight him, though she wanted to. She lay quietly for a moment. She realized she was in Efer's carriage, and it was moving. Did I win? She asked hoarsely. Whisper seemed shocked, then amused. Yeah, you won, and you scared the shit out of all of us. What? What happened? I can answer that. The large silhouette of Efer appeared in the now open door of the carriage. Of course I'm gone for only a moment and you wake. Efer sat opposite of Tali and placed a kettle, some strange black cloth, and some flowers on the counter. She reached under the counter and retrieved a pestle and mortar. She began grinding the flowers down. Multi-bonding kills mages, Tali. It kills mages who know what it is, understand it, study it. You are lucky to be alive. Tali's chest felt tight. She had never assumed using multi-bonding could kill her or even hurt her. She simply assumed it would make her very tired. Well, at least now she knew what could go wrong. She smiled as she realized she'd answered one of her own questions. Yver finished crushing the flowers, put them in the black cloth, and poured boiling water from her kettle over them, letting a strange purple liquid drip into a beaker. She poured the liquid into a mug and handed it to Tali. Tali expected it to smell floral, but it smelled foul. She sipped and choked. It was beyond foul. She took another sip and gagged. What in the abyss am I drinking? Multibonding normally lets you cast multiple spells at once. But if you use the same spell multiple times, it grows exponentially in power. As such, the exchange also increases. Not exponentially, but a lot. Whatever exchange you had in you has been expended for some time. The drink is an old recipe that is said to help replenish exchange. Tali had simply assumed that running out of exchange was like a fire running out of fuel. Everything would just stop. The taste of the drink was getting to her. She set it down, the cup still nearly full. I find it works best if you do it in one big gulp, Ifair said. Tali nodded and downed the entire drink. It was not better. She nearly vomited, but by some incredible force of will, kept it down. Ifair chuckled. Oh, Tilly, why can't you do your lessons with such zeal after only a single command? They're boring, Tilly responded. Ifair raised her eyebrows, but still chuckled. I'm surprised you woke so soon. Once a person's exchange is drained, although we only have a vague idea of how it is replenished, the body struggles to regain its rhythms. This is why it's important for a mage to never completely drain it. I didn't know. I should have listened closer, Tali said. Ifair sighed. Although I would expect someone who flawlessly memorized all basic information about bonding and exchange to figure this out, I never explained the risks of multibonding. It's unheard of that a student can manage it, especially with something as mild as a sacrum. I am angry that you did it, Tali. But I'm also curious as to how. Me too, Tali replied. Tali turned to look at the window and then sat up. For the first time since waking, she began to parse exactly where she was. Shapes and shadows flashed outside the window of the carriage. 
She pulled herself up to the window. That distinctive earthy smell filled her nose, and ancient gnarled trees rolled past her. The smell was stronger now, sweeter almost. She breathed deeply and exhaled. She turned to whisper. I made it, she said. I'm outside the wall. Well, I wouldn't let a mage this promising stay behind an Eero, Efer said. Talene now noticed that her bedroll was sitting beside her, now completely dry. Her heart leapt in her chest. She grabbed it, opened it, and sighed in relief. Nestled inside was her blade, Leaf. It had been quite the chore to steal it before leaving Greenhill. She'd attempted to pick the lock to Father Jurgen's office and quickly found that you needed to actually know what you were doing. On the last day before leaving, she had taken an axe to his door and his cabinet. Praise the Lord of Deepstone, she now had the wall separating her and the orphanage. Where in Deepstone? Ifer said, shocked by the sudden appearance of the blade. It's mine. I made it. At Greenhill, Talese said proudly. Ifer glared at the girl, seeming to decide if she wanted to push the girl for more information or not. Finally, she shrugged and simply said, Fair enough. The three sat in silence for a while. Tali was surprised to find that this silence was strangely comfortable. Whenever she was in a group of people and no one was talking, it usually meant someone was about to get yelled at. But for some reason, this just felt nice. Ifair stood up and excused herself. She said she would be back later, and then they could all discuss the journey to come. She stepped outside the cart. Whisper turned to Tali. I think at this point we can stop tallying points, he said. Well, for one thing, yes. But when you teach me how to steal, I imagine you are going to be much better at it than me for a while. Rival. Ifair found Ricky Slar hobbling about in the upper-class carts in the caravan head. She approached him from behind and knocked his hat off. He spun, crouching into a strange, almost feral stance. Huh. Just like any mage of the House of the Die, truly not a warrior. Oh, you, he muttered, standing back up. Ifair noticed that he glanced down at his silver pocket watch, which had appeared in his hand before quickly shoving it back into his robe. Ah, uh, looking to put some odds on something, he said with a grin. Sure, what are the odds on me not strangling you, Ifair said. Ricky Slar's face paled, but his mischievous grin remained. Ah, uh, based on your face, I'd say, not great. What is it I've done to wrong you? Why don't you tell me? Hmm, can't think of anything specific. Think harder, Ifair said, stepping forward. Or, I tell the House of the Die about that little book you wrote while you were still teaching at the consortium. Ricky Slar's face paled. Ah, well, now that I think of it, I do recall I did perhaps tell the girl Tali about how one of the configurations was stronger than the other. That's all! That is not all. You told the poor girl about multibonding. She triple bonded to the sacrum, Ricky Slar. Do you have any idea of the exchange that room? We're lucky she isn't dead in either body or mind. Ricky Slar fidgeted. Well, that would explain the volatile results. She's all right? Ifair glared at him. She could have died, Ricky Slar. Careless, even for you. 
I hope you enjoyed the coin. She turned to leave. Ah, yes, what a shame. To plot to use children to your own devices, hmm? She turned back and glared at Ricky Slar. We are nothing alike. We are more alike than you may think. I truly did not wish to harm the girl. I expected she would double bond and perhaps have a headache. A headache she wouldn't notice as she was overcome by ecstasy of victory. He paused and licked his lips. Do you remember your first triple bond? The exercise it took to get control to, to maintain a clean bond and actually affect the world? It takes a mage years. I stared at water, watched it boil, watched it freeze for dozens of hours before I came even close to feeling like I could understand it well enough to affect it with a triple bond and not pass out. I had told her about it only a few hours before. Ifair was already gone. She had no reason to discuss this. Not with him. The Sekrum had strange characteristics. The bond is much simpler than a full monolith. Perhaps that accounted for the strange display? She would investigate. Whatever ability the girl had, she needed to think about if it could be used for what was to come next for the two children. It was time to finally tell them her ulterior motives for bringing them on the journey. Ricky Slar continued to reflect. It was illogical. The only explanation would be to Lee having studied the characteristics of water for months, watching its shape and flow, heat and cool, drip and drop. Or perhaps another material? Ricky Slar shook his head and continued on his route to disperse the few payouts from the day's wagers. And Talie now stared at Leaf. Or was it Strife? She smiled. No. Despite the near catastrophe, the blade had treated her well. It was not blackened. She was glad placing it in the bedroll in the water had saved them both from the heat. She'd initially placed it there to experiment, but her ad hoc plan for the last match had been simple. One of her bonds was focused on the water, but two were on the blade. Deep in the water of the pond, it had dispersed the heat. Using the spell on the blade had been so much easier. It felt like she understood the metal, and the metal understood her. Moving those two bonds from being focused on the sword to the water was excruciating, like running full speed into water and trying to keep running as fast as possible. It had been exhausting, but a single moment of connection was all she'd needed. She reflected fondly on the many nights she'd spent at the forge, heating the sword, shaping it, watching it cool. She thought about the way it plunged into the water and the way the water would boil in flame. She reflected on the properties of the steel and the few joys of her youth. She thought of shaping the sword and the sword shaping her. She held Leaf up to the sunlight, glinting through the canopy of the ancient trees of the web, and smiled. Thank you for listening. Everything you hear in this show is created by me, Adam Ganong. Every word written, every note played. If the work I am doing here has brought you some joy, some comfort, some entertainment, please consider supporting a solo creator on Patreon. Link to that is in the show notes down below. The Stone Singer Chronicles art is by Peter Bartel. Thank you, Peter. There is a link to his website in the show notes. A special thanks to my wife, Jenna Noor, and my friend, Destructobot. Join the Stonesinger Chronicles Discord to get extra information about the show and officially earn your rank as the Mage of the Third Bond. Again, link to that in the show notes down below. All right, and until next time.